On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome to this episode of the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. Funding for the E-Series is provided by the Dr. John A. Lusk Fund for Hospice and Palliative Care Education. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I am your host. In today's episode, Trent Cockrum, CEO of Hospice of the Piedmont, is joined by Dr. Scott Merkin, Associate Medical Director for Hospice of the Piedmont and attending physician for the Randolph Hospice House. Dr. Merkin is passionate about providing care that matches patient goals and needs and facilitating the conversations that lead there. You can read more about him in the show notes for this episode. Together, Trent and Dr. Merkin will discuss common barriers to and strategies for having intentional conversations related to care expectations and the importance of normalizing these difficult conversations. Let's listen in. Hello, Dr. Merkin. So glad of you to join me today as a guest. Um, as uh, Ryan mentioned in your bio, you are uh, one of our medical directors here at Hospice of the Piedmont and Hospice of Randolph. And so I'm so glad that you were um, willing to join me as a guest today and share your um Bount of fount of knowledge or font of knowledge um, with uh, our listeners today about a really interesting topic. Um, you know, I'll just jump right in. We know that uh, from our past uh, conversations that you know the the concept of identifying as a caregiver often evolves over time. And you know, in my own experience, I know um, working in healthcare for a very long time that you know health and decline. Um, also evolves over a span of time, most of the time for most people. Um, and can you talk a little bit just about that in general? Yeah, um, you know, we have many different ideas about what we think our care should look like at different phases in our life. And sometimes the changes can come on so gradually that we adapt to that decline in a way that that many people who are giving significant amount significant amounts of care don't always identify themselves as caregivers because they have taken on that role so gradually um, that it just seems like another part of their just day-to-day life. Um, so even though they're giving a tremendous amount of care, they don't always self-identify. Other people are put into a situation where they very suddenly have to give a very intensive level of care um, and can be easily overwhelmed if they don't have someone to sort of guide them through what that might look like. Yeah. So you've had a lot of these conversations, Dr. Merkin, over the course of your of your career with many thousands of patients, I suspect, and, uh, lots of family members. Um, can you sort of offer, um, you know, your perspective as a healthcare professional about what those conversations actually look like and how oftentimes they come about, you know, is it, is it oftentimes driven by the family? Is it sometimes driven by the patient? Is it driven by both? Is it driven by the medical provider? You know, who sort of begins those conversations? I suspect it varies. It does. And it it varies by not only the, the situation that you find yourself in, but also by what stage of life you're in what your other past experiences with the healthcare system have been, uh, who your support system is, all those things factor into when and where these conversations happen. 
um, we as a profession are trying to move those conversations upstream to have them occur during times when we're not in crisis, but we also have to have the skill to have those situations in a, those conversations in a crisis situation. Um, that's the least desirable, but probably the most common is that people are put in a situation where they're, they're given a tremendous amount of information and then asked to make a decision. And one of the things that, that all clinicians do, but in particular palliative care, is to help people sort out that, that heap of information and say, okay, okay of these 4,000 facts that your medical team threw at you, what's the three or four or five of them that will make the difference in your decision? So I suspect you're, you're oftentimes beginning to, and, and, and maybe this is true for families too, you're beginning to look for perhaps really obvious cues and perhaps really subtle cues that allow that door to be opened just a little bit to begin you know, a thoughtful conversation about, well, let's talk about where you are today, or let's talk about where you hope to be, or let's talk about what your understanding of your current condition is, right? And what that might look like for you in the future. Is that fair? It is. And so sometimes this might be prompted, of course, by a new diagnosis. This is a new thing you've never faced before. So that's a time when these conversations often arise. But like you said, there can be more subtle cues of um, when someone especially has had a prolonged decline or multiple hospitalizations or has had to change their location or type of care, sometimes patients will start saying things that indicate they'd like to talk about kind of other possible path pathways. So they may say, I just don't think I could stand to go back to that hospital one more time. Or they might say, I'm just so tired. I don't know if I can keep doing this. Sure. Um, and I think many times those are sort of trial balloons that the patient floats to see if their, their support system is ready to have that talk or not. And that and really so, is their whole support system, right? That's their family, yes. their physician, everybody. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're often looking in a sense for permission. So they're almost asking for permission to have this conversation. And if they get shut down, there's no guarantee that they will float that trial balloon again. They might, um, but sometimes that, that can end the conversation. So being attentive to those cues can make sure that we don't miss opportunities to further those conversations. Yeah, and so, you know, Thinking of that, then what have you found to be the most challenging facets that families have to, you know, begin thinking about or address when the patient maybe opens this door just a little bit? Sort of what, what happens then? So our society as a whole is not wonderful about talking about serious issues, end of life issues, chronic care issues. So sometimes it's just normalizing that, making sure that people understand everyone faces these decision points, everyone has to cross these bridges and sort of normalizing that these conversations not only are okay to have, but are essential to have 
to be able to um, make sure that people get care that matches what their wishes are. So the, the first barrier is just not having people become overwhelmed and shutting down. And so sometimes these conversations have to be divvied up into parcels that can be emotionally achievable. Um, so you don't have to feel like in one conversation that you have to solve all this. So letting people know that we can have many conversations um, about this sometimes takes some of the pressure off to sort of solve everything in one sitting, because that's almost never a reasonable goal. Um, so the emotional barriers to making these conversations a routine part of your care planning um, is probably the first biggest obstacle. And then, of course, you know, finding that common ground, finding the areas that that patients and their families and caregivers already share a viewpoint on, and then we can build forward from that. It's really sometimes everybody understands that there is an 800 pound gorilla in the room um, to use a, you know, a, a, a metaphor, um, but nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody understands that it's there, but, but, and, and there are beneficial considerations on either side. I think everybody has, my experience has been, everybody has the other person or other group's best interests at heart. Um, you know, um, I've oftentimes uh, heard, you know, family members say, well, um, we know mom is really sick, but we don't want to talk about that with her. And you hear, and then you hear the patient say, you know, I don't want my children to know that I'm really sick, but the reality is everybody knows that mom is really yeah. sick. And so I think to your point, just normalizing that conversation you know, allows everybody and uh, the opportunity to put it out into the open and have a really supportive dialogue about what the what everybody's next steps are. Right. And one of the one of the strategies that we use for having these conversations is sort of figuring out what motivates people. That why will they benefit from having these conversations and when there is a little bit of resistance, one of the talking points that, that often has been successful is the sense of control that's so important to people as they get fewer and few areas of their life and their healthcare that they can have much say over, retaining some control over those decisions. And I've often pointed out um, to people who were reluctant to have these conversations that if you don't have that conversation, then the chances are higher that someone's gonna make a decision that wouldn't match what you would have picked. And so by having that conversation, you can assert some control. Um, and like I said, many people, that's a big source of distress for them, this spiraling loss of control of, of their caregiving situation. And so this is a way to assert some of that control back and feel a little bit more empowered about making those decisions. Yeah, in so many ways, it would seem as though that is um, having all of the control, um, which I think is what we all sort of would, would want for ourselves and for um, those we care about. Hi friends, it's your host, Ryan Biagini. Join us for future episodes to learn more about the innovative work our organization is doing specific to understanding and supporting caregivers. 
and how you can engage with us to be a part of this exciting community change. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be sure not to miss an episode. And now let's get back to the conversation. What's the best advice that you have for, you know, you are an incredibly skilled medical provider. um, And for most people, they're not uh, a medical provider at all. They don't have this advanced body of knowledge that you do. And so what are the really accessible ways that people can begin to bridge these conversations with someone for whom they're beginning to provide caregiving services for, or maybe even just someone whom they care deeply about and they're concerned about their well-being uh, either in the near term or in the much longer term, which could be you know years, months, decades. Um, you know how how do we begin to 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 enter those conversations as just you know sort of regular old people? And I think the strategies are similar. When we have these conversations, I find it really valuable to keep all of the focus again on the person who has this caregiving situation and and maybe some new needs or some escalating needs and make it about that and not about, it's like, yes, we have to factor in how this affects the whole system, but rather than phrasing it about me, daddy, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do when you get sicker is not as good a strategy as daddy. I want to make sure I do the right thing for you when you can't make your own decisions. Can we talk about that? Is there a time that we could set aside to make sure that I'm clear on, on what it is that you would want? Um, And so that makes it about that person. And that motivation is the same that we talked about of that person wanting the control of knowing that when they cannot make decisions for themselves, that the decisions made will, will match what they would have picked. And I think it's important to note these conversations, you know, the first time that someone has the conversation you just described may not go as well as, as well as we had intentioned it to go, right? Which is, it begins a really interactive dialogue with, in, in your example, with someone's father about what is important to them. But, but it may be sort of, well, I'll talk about that when I'm ready and I'm not ready yet. And sure. so, you know, my, my question then becomes, you know, when that is the case, um, you know, do you just give up or, you know, if you're the family member, do you just give up or you, do you try to find another opportunity at another time? And I would try to set that stage during that same conversation and sort of assessing readiness to have the discussion is the first step in the discussion. So you might say, express those same concerns and say, is this something you're ready to talk about now or is there a better time? Um, And if they completely shut it down, even to say, you know, I understand that this isn't a good time. Let's, you know, circle back next week and I'm going to bring this up again and see if, you know. So setting some pretty clear anticipatory guidance of making it clear that this topic is going to come up again, but in a, in a very reassuring, calm way, not sure. as a, you know, it's not a threat in any, by any means. It's a, it's just a, a making it clear that we have to get some resolution on this, um, but it doesn't have to be right this second. And 
we often in, in uh, palliative care often use a, a wish worry statement. You know, I, I wish that we didn't have to deal with this, but my worry is that I'm going to be put in a situation or you're going to be put in a situation where we're going to have to make decisions. And I, you know, so it's again, phrasing all of that back around the person who has those needs and that you're there for them. So I think Dr. Merkin, what I hear you saying is that, you know, beginning to have these conversations, it is about permission. It is about, Hey dad, um, I want to make sure I, I wish that we weren't dealing with this, but I worry to use your phrase. I worry that I'm not going to make a decision that is consistent with your needs, wants, and priorities. And so I need you to help me understand that. Um, and so it, it is about giving and asking for and giving permission in that sense, right? And, and I suspect for most people um, in this, continuing this same example for the, for the father, they're going to they're gonna leave that conversation and they're going to have some thoughts that, that they may then address it later when it comes up again, or just spark a conversation seemingly out of the blue. I suspect it happens both ways, you know. Um, it does. And there, there are also some tools available to help facilitate those conversations. So you may have access to a healthcare provider, your primary care provider or someone, but if you don't have ready access to that, there are some other resources such as the uh, five wishes is a very common one. Um, but there are some resources out there that can kind of help guide those conversations. As you said, most people don't have experience or skills in these conversations. And so they can use those tools. And those aren't for everyone. For some people, those actually create a little bit more of a barrier. But for other people, they can be a, a, an entree into that conversation that then gets you know, you may not stick to that tool, you may start with it, and it may then spark other conversations, but it sometimes can be a way to get the conversation rolling in a neutral, fairly non-threatening way. Right, because the reality is none of us know, none of us knows what the future may hold, and so it's in our best interest to be prepared for that, which is not really the gist of our conversation today, but it's all wrapped up together because we are sure. just beginning to explore in our conversation about how we begin to even talk about decline, which could be very quickly or could happen over a very long span of time. And so we're just really talking about general preparedness and understanding, you know, um, which direction we want to go if this happens and which direction we want to go if that happens, right? And as we progress in our life course and in any illnesses, you know, our, our wishes and desires can change. We know this from multiple studies that, that our, our wishes for our healthcare and other decisions are not completely stable over time. And we really wouldn't expect them to be where, you know, someone who's in their thirties and has a young family and a full-time career is in a very different place in their life than someone who's retired. Um, and so those, those wishes can change over time. So these conversations are virtually never a one-time incident. And so even if you've had that conversation, whenever a new life event happens or a change in the trajectory of your illness, we often have to 
brush up those. We don't, you know, we don't usually have to start from scratch, but we have to brush up those conversations. And in North Carolina, we have something called a most form, a medical uh, order for scope of treatment, which is sort of a slightly more formal version of that five wishes that I mentioned. And right. that specifically has a requirement that you revisit it every year and sort of just say, hey, does this still match where you're at? You know, so that first conversation can be a little lengthy to fill out that form, but the subsequent conversations can can just be a sort of check-in, sort of a little pulse check. Hey, has anything changed? Are these, does this still reflect your wishes? Do we need to update this in any way? So, yeah, you know, almost as uh, as automatic as, uh, you know, we change the batteries in our smoke detectors twice a year uh, when we spring forward and fall back. Um, and uh, and so it, it, it at, at, at changes within our own lives, it is in our own best interest to make sure that we are, we still have, uh, we we still have, you know, all of our thoughts are as up to date as as our wishes are, right? And real life is so much more complicated than a piece of paper that <laughs> even if you've addressed and you filled out every and and again, I know you're going to have other conversations about advanced care planning. But even if you filled out every document that existed in the in the advanced care planning world, there's still a high likelihood that you or your decision makers are going to eventually face a decision that's not addressed on those because life is just way more complicated than a two-sided piece of paper. So you're invariably going to face a situation that this document doesn't address. And so that's where having that framework of decision-making is way more important than any specific single decision is sort of the strategy that you use to make those. And I know you're going to have more conversations with other people about that, but, but that definitely touches on what we're talking about. Yeah. And I, and I think too, that it's important to note that, you know, those decision makers or even people who are beginning to have these conversations that we've been talking about, independent of their ability to make a, a healthcare decision for someone, is not is, is variable. Um, realizing that you know, family means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, there's a you know, for for many people, it will be a spouse. Uh, for others, maybe the spouse isn't able to make those decisions. And so a brother makes those decisions or a sister makes those decisions because we are talking about, you know, some emotional considerations here, um, which is is a whole different topic for a whole different day. But I think but I think that the, the takeaway here is that sometimes the folks that we may be confiding in for those um, really important discussions may, in fact, not be members of our family at all. And that's okay. They may not be biologically related to us, but we have brought them into our family circle in some way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Merkin, you know, as we think about, you know, the conversation that we've had today, which has been really great, um, I think you've given our listeners um, some really accessible ways um, and, and empowered them to have um, really important conversations with people that they, that they love and care about. Um, if there's one thing that you really want to leave with our listeners today, what what would that be? One thing that one or two things that maybe we didn't discuss that you're like, you know, Trent, that was a really missed opportunity. I really wish we would have discussed that today. 
Um, I don't know that it's a missed opportunity as much as just a reinforcement of the, the number one thing is have that conversation and have it more than once. And they, those conversations will get more comfortable and less awkward over time. So just understand that these situations are uncomfortable and awkward for everyone, not just for you, but, but that should not get in the way of it because in virtually every circumstance that I've been involved in, not talking about it is virtually always worse than talking about it, even though talking about it is tricky. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging, but the alternative is almost always worse. Yeah. You know, I can echo that in my, in my 25 years in healthcare, um, the times where I've seen families struggle the most is when they weren't able to say, well, you know, um, this is, this is, uh, the care that my mom or dad would have wanted. Um, and when they're not able to say that with any degree of certainty or confidence, invariably it involves, you know, a, a longer period of grief, a longer period of guilt, a longer period of sort of self-questioning and doubt of whether or not I've done the right thing or not. And so um, I, I think I think that's a really important point um, to for us to be able to drive home. Yeah, I also wanted to say that that when you enter those conversations, this is also a little bit challenging, but as you sort of mentally and emotionally prepare yourself, I would say to go into those conversations as open as you can be. And without, we, we, we're very goal oriented people. And so we want, we have these goals we set up what we want to accomplish. But if you just go into that conversation with a, a sense of curiosity and a sense of just finding out, I don't, I, I'm just going to find out what this person is thinking about this. And I think that gets better results than, than having a specific goal of I'm going to achieve this by the end of this conversation. Um, so I would just say go into those go into those conversations with a, a sense of curiosity and exploration um, tends to get the best results. Yeah, so not not having a defined goal um, because the goal is just beginning just beginning that initial conversation, right? right? Um, what comes out of it may not be what we'd hope for, but um, I guess it's um, it, if we if we hope to get the small pearls of wisdom out of it, um, that leads us to you know a greater sense of awareness um, later on uh, down the line. Yeah, and those early talks basically build that foundation that you then work on from there. So if you have that firm foundation of hey, we're we're people who talk about this stuff, we're families that have these conversations. Now you've set an expectation when when the new event arises that there's already this sort of um this sort of um rubric that we're we're people who talk about stuff like this openly it becomes an expectation as opposed to an exception right yeah um Dr. Merkin, I really appreciate your joining me today and sharing your again your font of knowledge um, with our listeners about this really complicated issue of how we begin to talk about health decline um, with people who are um, really close to us, people whom we care deeply about, um, and how we begin to navigate that responsibly and in the most supportive way for everybody involved. So thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all that you do for our patients and their families. 
Thank you so much for having me, Trent. And I want to tell our, our listeners that if you're struggling the, with these conversations, reach out to your healthcare community and see what resources are available. And there are people who will uh, help guide you through these challenges. Thank you for listening in to this episode of the E-Series. We're excited to continue this caregiving dialogue in our next episode, Surrogate Decision Making. Join Trent as he talks with Kelly Olmeda, Director of Quality, Compliance, and Education for Hospice of the Piedmont and longtime hospice social worker. Kelly brings with her a wealth of knowledge to the conversation from her professional and personal experience. Be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts so that you'll receive a notification when this episode publishes. Until next time, I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been the E-Series.